You may be seated. Elementary age kiddos, it's time to go down to the class, unless you want to stay up here with us, which is okay too. But you guys are welcome to head down. Well, again, good morning. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here at Mercy House, and I want to welcome you. We've been going through a, a series that we've been calling Gifted, and the reason being is because we've been exploring spiritual gifts. We've been looking at Romans 12 in particular and the seven gifts that are there, and we did a little, uh, in, some intro sermons to kind of understand the concept of, of the gifts and the, the image that Paul uses of the body of Christ and this idea of there being a diversity of gifts, lots of body parts, but those body parts are unified and are on a single mission together. And then we started looking at specific gifts, and so we were looking at prophecy and service and exhortation and things like that. And so this, this morning, uh, we're going to take a break from looking at specific gifts, and we're going to look at a text that goes into some of the images that help us understand the church, the nature of the church, the mission of the church. And so we look, you know, it's, the body of Christ is a, is a huge image, and it's used repeatedly, but there are other images. And so one of those is uh, in 1 Peter Two, and so there's a lot of images in here, and so we'll dr drill down into some of them and briefly mention others, but my hope is this will be sort of a fireworks display of the images that are in this text, and we'll leave this place thinking, wow, the church is amazing, okay? So that's my goal. You walk out of here, the church is amazing, and we'll get more specific when we get to the end. So you just heard this read, 1 Peter 2. Um, I'm going to read these first few verses again. He says, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So here's the first image. The first image is that the church is a bunch of babies. And not just babies, but babies that are nursing. That's how infantile uh, we are. And so we're going to begin by talking about this, this first set of relationships. So you, you've got relationship up, relationships in, relationship out. These are the three movements in this passage. It's also when we talk about uh, what it means to be a part of this church, we use these same movements, right? We, we talk about worship and connecting and, and serving. Uh, and so we, we talk about that because it's in the Bible, Right? And so first and foremost is our relationship with God. And then we'll talk more as we go through the passage what these other relationships of in and out uh, or, uh, are. Uh, as babies, uh, we need continued nourishment. He says uh, pure spiritual milk. And you may be thinking, well, why am, am I a baby? Well, if you're a Christian, you've been born. Actually, you've been reborn. And before that, uh, you were dead. You were spiritually dead because of sin. And because of that sin, you were separated from God, and that meant you were separated from the giver of life. And so you were dead. And so while you were born physically alive, you were born spiritually dead. And spiritually dead people uh, behave in certain ways. And this is this little list. It's not exhaustive by any means, but this little list that he gives to kind of remind what life was like when we were spiritually dead. He says that characterized by malice, that means the desire to hurt another, uh, by deceit, 
willingness to lie in order to get what we want, but we do it deceitfully and subtly so no one can know that we're doing it, right? Hypocrisy, we have two selves. We have the true self of who we really are, and then we have the false self uh, of, of the person we're portraying, and we want people to perceive us as uh, envy, we're jealous of what others have, and so we're angry that they have it, and then we rejoice when they lose it kind of a, a thing. Uh, he, he says, uh, talks about slander, and so that's lying about other people for the purpose of getting what I want or hurting uh, maliciously those that are in my life. These are all symptoms of being spiritually dead, and it may not be obvious on the outside because we're such great hypocrites, uh, that we're, we're spiritually dead. And we're still breathing air, and we're eating food, and we're laughing and spending time with friends, maybe volunteering at a homeless shelter, even attending church uh, every week. But it's possible that we could be doing all those things and still be spiritually dead, which is why partly he gives this little, this little list. Um, these are symptoms, right? Think about symptoms. Think about if you have a fever. The problem is not that you have a fever. The problem is that you have an infection that's causing the fever. And so when you put the, head, the, the hand up to the head of the person and you're like, whoa, malicious, slander, hypocrisy, I think you have the infection of sin and you're spiritually dead, right? I mean, the worst physical symptom is you have no pulse, and so this is what we were before we were born. Now, how do you get born, right? How do you become one of those babies that makes up the church? Well, here's one verse, a couple of verses that describe this. It's described many times in the Scriptures. John 1:12 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. You get born by believing. And what you believe in is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when you become aware of your sin, your spiritually dead condition, which in and of itself is a, a work of grace in your life, and you realize you need a Savior, and you reach out to that Savior for forgiveness and restoration, you are born, and you become one of the babies that make up the church. Now, when babies are born, they really, well, they do a couple of things, but one of the important things that they do is that they eat, and they eat a lot. Uh, at camp this week, we got to hang out with Tommy and Caitlin Moore, because they were both on the camp staff, and, and, and they brought Chloe with them, their daughter. And so this is Chloe when she was first born. Uh, and, and, you know, pr pretty amazing little infant. And, but this was Chloe at camp, and she's not even two years old yet. She's, she's grown a lot, and she can talk, and she can run, and she can scream when mommy and daddy say, sit down. And, and, and she's just a whole different kid than she was when she was first born. The main reason for that is she has been drinking a lot of milk. She drank a lot of milk. And it caused her to grow up. And so when we think about this relationship of up and what it means to be part of the church, we are a bunch of babies who are being nourished by pure spiritual milk. Now, what's pure spiritual milk? Pure spiritual milk is God's Word. God's Word. That's why when I'm standing up here every week, I'm opening up God's Word. Because I know if these babies, including me, 
are going to grow, we're going to grow from our intake of God's Word. Now, this is not the only way that you intake God's Word. If you're just intaking it here, you're probably going to be pretty skinny, right? You're probably going to be pretty skinny, not in a good way, a bad way, all right? Uh, there's other ways that you take it in. I usually use this little navigator hand uh, as an illustration of how we take the Word in. I think it's really helpful. So, uh, we hear it. That's what you're doing now. But not only do we hear it, but we, we also um, hear, read. Yeah, read. We read it. So, so just hearing it here today, that's a good start and you're, you're getting some nourishment. But, but you need to go home and you need to read your Bible. But not only hear and read it, but then you study it. You go deeper in. You, you, you look at some tools that help you understand the text. You, you look some things up online. You, 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 you outline. You, you summarize. You read and reread. You, you, you go deeper, and that nourishment's going to increase more. Hear and read and study, and then you start to move into memorize. And so now you're taking little portions of the Scripture. You're, you're, you're put, committing it to memory. All of this is for the purpose of getting to the thumb, which is meditation. And meditation is this ongoing relationship, conversation that you're having with God through His Word. You're not just studying some information, you're actually having a conversation with God and you're being nourished. And if you do that, you're going to grow. You're going to grow and you're not going to just stay an infant. You're actually going to move into the toddler stage and then to a teen stage. And you're going to keep moving, growing up in Jesus. This picture uh, behind me, or it's almost behind me, yep. Uh, Grant uh, just graduated from Amherst College. Some of you know Grant. And Grant got a great education at Amherst College, but better than that, he found Jesus while he was at Amherst College. And so between his freshman, sophomore year, uh, he placed his faith in Christ, and he started growing like crazy. I, I don't know if I've ever known a college student that has grown this quickly over, over, over such a short amount of time, and it's because he was being nourished by the Word of God. I remember having a conversation with Grant one day, and I'm like, hey, what, how are things going? What's going on? And, and uh, he's like, well, I'm going through all the podcasts of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology because I'm trying to understand better what God's Word says. There's 117 podcasts in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. On top of his academic load, playing football, social things, he was listening one at a time, the 117 podcasts on systematic theology and taking notes while he was doing so. And he wasn't doing that because I said, Grant, you need to do this. He was doing this because he was so hungry. He, he was eating on demand. <laughs> he wanted it. And he, I mean, he was reading and thinking and, and growing. And consequently, he, he grew in such a way that he had a, an amazing impact on his friends and on the campus of Amherst College. But we don't just grow in our up relationship, we also grow in our in relationships. The next part of the passage talks about this in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So now he's talking about the relationships in the church, and he talks both about the form of the church and the function, and they are tightly 
uh, connected, but he, he, he uses these two images. So for the form, he uses the image of the Old Testament temple. For the function, he uses the image of the Old Testament priesthood. Now think about the temple. Uh, the Old Testament temple uh, was the place where God made His presence known to His people. It's where humanity and divinity uh, could, could join together. And partly because uh, the reason was is because there was an altar at the front of, of the, the, the holy place there. And, and at that altar was a lot of bloody death. Animals were constantly being sacrificed for sin. And so because the sin was being taken care of by the death of those animals, then God could come and dwell at least to some degree with His people. And so God's presence was made known in what was known as the most holy place. And it was the innermost part of the temple. And so He's saying, church, you are the new temple. You are the place where God is dwelling. And that doesn't mean that He doesn't dwell with you when you're an individual out there in, in the world, but there's, there's something unique that occurs when, people, when God's people gather and they're in community, both when they're in the same room, but also when they're doing life, but they're still connected via the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is not a physical uh, location, right? It's a people. It's a people. It's a, the gathered people that make up the church. Now, let's think about the form here of this new temple. The, 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 the walls are made of living stones. That's you and me. That's the, that's the Christians. That's the Christians that has, have been born. They passed out of spiritual death into life. They're now uh, babies that are being nourished. And, but not only are they being nourished, now they're being placed in the wall of the temple, of the church. He says, as you come to Him right? We're coming to Jesus. And then a few uh, phrases later, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is building us into a spiritual house. Now, Jesus was a carpenter, so he has some experience. Like, he knows how to build stuff. And so, he is the one who's building the church, and he's building the church out of you and me. And I love this picture of a stone, Right? It's not a brick. It's not this, this uniform kind of a thing. It, uh, stones are all different. And so a stonemason has to, to figure out, well, what is the shape of this particular stone and how does this stone fit in the wall such that it can create this beautiful stone wall? And Jesus, with his expertise as a stonemason, is building a beautiful, powerful place for his dwelling out of the people of God. Now, he's building it on an, a, a foundation. Every good building has a good foundation, and the foundation is Jesus, right? It says, behold, and it's quoting from the Old Testament, I'm laying in Zion a stone. Now, Zion's Jerusalem, okay? So, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Like, wait a minute, how can a stone be a hymn? Well, a stone, it's an image, right? It's an image that's, that's pointing to Christ. And it's saying that, that Christ is the foundation. So Christ is the builder, and He's taking living stones, and He's building it on Himself as the foundation. Peter got this way of, of, of speaking from Jesus Himself. From Matthew 16, uh, Jesus and His disciples are having a conversation, and He says, who do you say that I am? And this is one of Peter's good moments. He, Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if there's any, any confusion about the rock that he's talking about here, Peter, he clears this up in 1 Peter 2. The rock is Jesus. And not just the good teacher Jesus, the Jesus who has died for sins once for all, the, the Jesus that was buried three days, the Jesus that has risen from the dead, the Jesus that ascended into heaven, the Jesus that is the right hand of the Father. This is the rock that won't move. And this is, this is why every Sunday you got a preacher standing up here who's telling you about the bloody death of Jesus. This is why every week you come in here and you start singing songs about the cross of Christ. This is why every week you come in here and we're breaking the bread and we're taking the cup and we're remembering the foundation. Because of, of any church that's a real church, this is what's at the foundation. Is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. So that's the form, right? Jesus' foundation, we're living stones. But here's the function, and, and the form has been hinting toward this function. So first, you have special access to God if you're a priest, right? He says we're a holy priesthood. You have special access to God. Um, I think I have a picture of this. So in, in the, the, the interior of the, of the temple, you have the holy place and the most holy place. And this is, this is the place where, where God's presence is dwelling. Nobody goes into the holy place except priests. Nobody goes in the most holy place except the high priest once a year. And so now he's saying, church, you're all priests. You have special access to God. You can, you can be in the holy of holies. You can be in the heavenlies with absolute access to Him. You have backstage passes, except it's not just for a few VIPs. It's not just for the, the professional Christians. It's everyone. Everyone who's been born from death to life, who's one of those babies in the church, they, you have access to God. But that access is not just for you. Just like the access that the priests had, that, that wasn't just for them. They didn't just go to work and go, woohoo, I get to go in the holy place, suckers. No, they were going to the holy place because they were representing God to the people of Israel, right? And they were representing Israel to God. They were go-betweens. So this is the second part of what it means when he says, church, you're a, a holy priesthood. You're a go-between for one another, he creates a, a community that's interdependent. We have to priest for each other, right? We need folks that we're praying for and encouraging and speaking truth to, and we need people to do that for us. And so we, we priest for each other. So my question to you this morning is, if, if you're a Christian, I want to ask you, who are you regularly praying for? Who are you praying for? Are you just praying for yourself for the job you need or the, the pain you have in your knee or your grandmother, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with praying with those things. That's, those things, I mean, Jesus says pray for daily bread, right? Like, like, you should pray for all those things. But are you praying for somebody else? Are you praying for brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, the, 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 the most normal group that you would pray for would be your small group. 
right? And so do, do you have a, a little, little index card or something? You have those small group names on there and, and you're, you're praying for them and you're checking in with them and you're lifting them up in prayer. If, if the answer to that is, I'm not really praying for anyone, then, then you're not even beginning to priest for others. You're not even beginning to enter into this vision of what it means to be a holy priesthood. I shared this with the kids at camp. By the way, I preached this sermon at camp. Sorry. Um, I shared this with the kids at camp. This is a page out of my prayer book. I have this little, little prayer book. Each page is a different set of, of relationships, different set of people. And this is my page for the staff, right? And so I have their names. And so I, I go through their names and I think about where they are and what they're doing and what they're wrestling with. And I pray for them. And if I, if I think well, I should text them and, and, and ask them how the, it's going or tell them encouragement or whatever. Uh, but, but then on the bottom there, I have some things. I, I pray for them on Monday and I pray for them on Tuesday and I pray for them on Wednesday and I pray for them on Thursday. You can do that. that that's not just something the pastor can do. You can do that. You can priest for those gods put in your, your domain of influence in the church. I think it's in part why we've seen God at work in a unique way over the last 18 months to two years is because there has been a lot of praying for people. And so when you put down prayer requests on these cards, those, those, those go into an email. That email goes out to a group of people that's praying every week. And V, she pumps that out every week. Like she's typing those up and, and just faithfully putting that out on email. And, and people are, including myself, are praying over those requests. And I think it's, it's in large part why we've seen God at work because there's been some priesting for one another. I, you also need pe people that are priesting for you, including me. I also showed this to the kids at camp, but just a little uh, snippet of some of the texts that I was receiving as I was in camp, people that were praying for me. And, and they were like, here's what I'm praying. Here's what I'm praying for you. Here's what I'm praying for Melanie. Here's what I'm praying for the kids that are at camp. And I, I think, it, again, it's, I think it's in part why we saw 30 kids come to know Christ at camp. We usually see about a dozen, which is awesome, and we're always grateful. But we, we actually started praying at the beginning of the week for 30 kids, 30 kids to profess faith in Christ. And we saw that. We saw that, along with some other stuff we'll talk about later. So who in your life is God calling you to support, to encourage, to pray for, to priest for? So under that category of, of holy priesthood, we got special access, we, uh, we are go-betweens, and then thirdly, we are making spiritual sacrifices. I think this is akin to what Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he calls it, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Both Peter and Paul pointing to this uh, idea of a whole burnt offering. So they're definitely not pointing to a sacrifice for sin. That's been done once for all by Jesus. Don't need any more sacrifices for sin. But there was a, also a sacrifice called a whole burnt offering, and that was uh, what an Old Testament believer could offer the whole animal on the altar as a way to say, I want my whole life presented to you in absolute unconditional surrender. And so he's saying to the church, you holy priesthood, you have access to God, you're a go-between, and you're called to give absolutely everything for your brothers and sisters in Christ, to lay down your life. And it's hard. 
That's why he calls it a sacrifice. You ever done anything sacrificial that wasn't hard? I don't think so. He's just being honest in the way that he's describing this. Church life over the long haul, it's hard. It is. It's a sacrifice. Uh, we celebrated our, Sarah Moylan called this the Massiversary. Uh, so 18 years ago, yesterday, we drove across the state line into Massachusetts to start a church from scratch in 1999. And it's the hardest thing we've ever had to do. It's really one of the only things we've ever done because we spent 18 years of our life doing it. And th there has been a, a lot of pouring out day in, day out, day out, and continues to be so. And it's, it's an honor. It's an honor to do that. In fact, that's what First Peter says. He says, so the honor is for those who believe. He, get, he gives this vision of, of having access to God and being a go-between for one another and, and, and giving these spiritual sacrifices and leveraging everything, your time, your talents, your treasures for, for this, this community that is the, the church. And he says, this is an honor. This is where it's at. This is where, the, this is the, the locus point of the activity of the God of heaven is in the local church. It's an honor to pour your life out. It's not just one subset of your life. It's not just, well, I go to church and I'm somewhat involved and I give a few dollars. No. No, this is where it's at. And, and, and those that pour their lives into being a part of the community and the mission of the church, their marriages are built up, their kids are built up. There's a lot of like, things that we're trying to like, make happen that we go, well, I don't have time for church because I'm going to make this stuff happen. Actually, that stuff happens when you put church in its proper place. And so Peter says, this is an honor to leverage your life for this thing that God is doing in this temple, in this priesthood. But it's not something that everyone's experiencing. Right? He says, not, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. He, and there's another little reminder there that, that you, you, you belong to this temple, this priesthood, because you've believed in the gospel. And if you don't believe in the gospel, you're, you're stumbling over the gospel. You're, you're, you're offended by this bloody death of Jesus that is the only way for you to be reconciled with God. And it is offensive in our cultural context and really in any cultural context throughout all of human history. It's been offensive that the only way to be reconciled with God is accepting this free gift of forgiveness that comes through the payment of a bloody death by Jesus. It's offensive in our culture to say Christianity is the only way. We want to be able to say, well, I mean, other religions are uh, other ways and Christianity is one way, and, but, but no. 
You're you're offended by the gospel when you're doing that. You're not understanding what is the cornerstone, what is the foundation. And so it's offending you. You're stumbling over it. Or or for some, it's like, well, I'm not going to give my whole life in response to that grace. I mean, I'd love to be forgiven, but but this, like, put my whole life on the altar, like a whole burnt offering. I mean, I I don't want to do that. You're stumbling over the cornerstone. You're stumbling over the foundation. You're being offended by the foundation. Don't be stumbling over the foundation. Stand on the foundation. Stand on it. Believe it. Receive this free gift of forgiveness that, yes, is paid for by a bloody death. And it's offensive to our cultural context. But it is the truth. It is the truth. The, the reason that God was showing up in the temple and in the tabernacle is because of all the bloody death that was going on in that altar every day. The reason he shows up in this church is because we've been talking about the bloody death. We've been uh, showing the bloody death. We've been singing about the bloody death. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit says, I can work with that. I will show up for that. I will build a church on that. And so don't, don't stumble over it. Put your faith in Christ this morning and stand on that immovable cornerstone, that immovable rock foundation. Because when you do that, you have all these amazing promises and things that become true of you as the church. And this is, where, this is like the fireworks display of this passage right here, verse 9 he just starts going off on all these different images, and I don't have time to drill down in every one, and so I, I won't, uh, but I'll read them and briefly comment. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received Mercy. He's saying, church, you're your own race. Race and ethnicity, they, they matter, but they're not preeminent. There's something that supersedes, an identity that supersedes race and ethnicity, that the race that you are because you are a believer in Jesus. You're a royal priesthood. We've talked about priesthood. Now he's tagging on royal. You're a priest king, meaning you now have been given a domain to oversee on behalf of God, and it could be in your family and in the church and in your community and and your neighborhood and all kinds of things that God entrusts to you to now oversee in the power of the, the, the access that you have with God. You're a holy nation. Church, you you live in a particular nation state, but you have an identity that supersedes that nation state. No matter whether that nation state's doing something that you agree with or something you don't agree with, or there's someone in office that you agree with, or there's someone in office you don't agree with, there's something above and beyond that. It's you, church. You, You are a holy nation. And then he finishes up by saying you're a people. You're a people. A people of God. You're not a building, you're not an institution, you're the people of God. A bunch of babies who, because of your access to God, are are now being placed as living stones into this temple where the presence of God is dwelling. 
And how did that all happen? You heard it in this, these phrases. I'll reread. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, mercy is the withholding of deserved wrath out, out of compassion. And so he's pointing to the gospel. He's saying, God the Father, he, he's held back on deserved wrath. And he's put that wrath on his son on the cross. And because of that, he can give us mercy. And out of the mercy that he's given us, he's now creating a community. That's why we call ourselves Mercy House. Right? We're, we're a household, a family. We're being built, how? By the mercy of God. That's the gospel. We're being built. And so people are coming to know Christ when they hear the gospel and they respond in faith. People are being built up in this gospel and the mercy and the grace of it. And our church is being built up in the process. But there's not just the relationship up and the relationships in, but there's also the relationship out. And this is also in this passage. It's a pretty amazing passage, actually. You think about it. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is about our relationship with those outside the church, with, with the world. And, and so he tells us how to think, and he tells us how to act. Tells us how to think, tells us how to act. How do we think? We think of ourselves as a foreigner. We're a foreigner. We're an outsider. We're an alien. We're an immigrant. Right? We, we are in a foreign land. Even though we were born in the land we may, we, may be in, we may be in the same town that we were actually born in, but if we went from being spiritually dead to being born into, into being a, a, a Christian, we're, we're alive now, we're now a foreigner in a foreign land. Some of you know what that feels like firsthand. You've come from another place to study here or to work here, and, and you know what it's like to, to go from a culture that you feel comfortable in and that you grew up in and a language that you know well, and then to drop down into the middle of a culture and possibly a language that you don't know well, and you're just like, I just, I don't know how to, 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 to function. I don't know how, what, what the words all mean, and, and it's, it's in, incredibly tra- challenging. And I, I remember I, I was on... Um, the metro with uh, Pedro Soda. We were on a Dominican trip uh, to do some mission work, and uh, Pedro's Dominican, and so I'm standing there with him. And and there's a, there's about six other white people on on this mission trip, and and the you know there's about a hundred Dominicans that are on this, the part of the, the metro that we're on in this car, and they're all staring at us white people, and they're like, what are they doing here, right? And it felt uncomfortable. And, and Pedro's kind of watching this, and Pedro, Pedro, Pedro's like, uh, he's like, this is kind of weird, isn't it? I'm like, what do you mean? And he, he's like, well, he's like, I always feel out of place unless I'm in the Dominican. I'm in the Dominican Republic. I feel like I'm just, I'm just blending in. Like, no one knows that, that I'm here. And I, I'm like, but you're, you're from Lynn, Mass. Like, you, you live in Boston, right? Like, you're all, this is such an ethnically diverse city. Like, surely, he's like, he said, I know, I know. He's like, part of it's in my head. And so it was a great conversation just, just about ethnicity and what that feels like and what, what, what that is like to experience. 
but, but it also is, is a window into this passage, okay? And, and, and it's like, when you become a Christian, you're a foreigner in a foreign land. There's a contrast of, of your culture, of your values, of the way you're thinking now, of the way you're living. Uh, you're a foreigner in a foreign land. Uh, the New Testament Christians were strangers in a strange land. Uh, the Christianity of the New Testament was a constant rebuke against the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome, Rome had deities for everything. Farming, volcanoes, rain, sex, you name it. They had a deity for it. Uh, every pagan meal started with the pouring out of a liquid offering to one of the gods or goddesses. Parties were often in a pagan temple. You were dining and partying with the god of choice in the temple. You oftentimes couldn't participate in Roman entertainment, right? You go into the gladiatorial games. Uh, the big finale is bring out all the slaves and totally slaughter them in front of the crowd. Like, like you can't participate in that kind of thing when you are a Christian. Every trade had a trade guild, and that trade guild had a particular god or goddess that was over that trade guild. So if you were a silversmith and you wanted to be a part of the economic system, you had to be a part of the guild, which had a particular god or goddess as its leader. If you were a school teacher, you were forced to teach the Roman gods and goddesses, and not just like we do now, where it's like, huh, isn't this interesting, but teaching kids to actually worship the gods and goddesses. Uh, even if you worked in a hospital, you had uh, priests and priestesses, and they're walking around, and, and they're doing incantations and incense burning and praying to different gods and goddesses, trying to help people get well. And here you are trying to work in the middle of the hospital. Historian Bruce Shelley writes, in short, the early Christian was almost bound to divorce himself from the social and economic life of his time if he wanted to be true to his Lord. And so I think sometimes we think, oh, poor us, we're in such a culture clash, but really it's, it's actually been worse. <laughs> but it's pretty bad now. There is a tremendous contrast in the cultures and the values and the way of thinking and the way of living as a, as a disciple of Jesus and that of the world. The Boston Public Library tweeted this out not too long ago, uh, story time with some four-year-olds. And the story time was being led by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They're men that dress in drag as a way to undermine anything traditional about sexuality or gender. And they thought, this is awesome. We're going to tweet this out with a few exclamation points. I don't share that to cause those that may be struggling with gender identity to feel badly. I, that is a serious thing, and it's something that we want to have compassion on. But it, this is a reminder of the differences in the cultures between those who are following Christ and the world. What has become mainstream uh, is actually moving in terms of the divide. Now, before we're too hard on the sisters of perpetual uh, indulgence, uh, Peter writes this, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying, yeah, there's, there's these, uh, these differences out here in the world, but while that's going on, there's, there's a, something inside of us, the indwelling sin, the fallen nature that continues to be there even after we're a Christian, and there's something in us that would love to perpetually indulge as well. And so not only are, are we having to, to deal with what's out here, but we're having to deal with what's in here 
as well. And so I think for some Christians, when they think about that, they say, well, we've got to build a compound and we've got to only listen to Christian music and we've got to, 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 to build some walls around us and we've got to sequester ourselves and we've got to keep away from that bad old world. But interestingly enough, that's not what Peter says to do. He says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, Gentiles in the Old Testament were everyone who wasn't a Jew, all right? So the Jews were the people of God, and then the Gentiles were everyone else. And so Peter is now taking up that language, and he's using it to talk about people in the church. And so he's saying people in the church are one group and everyone else, those who do not know Christ. And he says, I want you to live among them. I want you to live among those who are not in Christ. I want you to engage with the sisters of perpetual indulgence. I want you to love them. I want you to demonstrate the gospel to them. I want you to tell them about the gospel. And so we want to move toward the world. But while we're doing that and, and, and we're getting up close and personal, we want to live in such a way that's honorable. We don't want to look like the world in the ways that it's dishonoring Christ. We want to live honorably as we're in the midst of and among the world. And so if we're living honorably, what we're doing is living in such a way that shines light on Jesus and not shines the light on us. And so this helps us to understand what it means to have both this relationship in the up, this relationship in the in with our fellow believers, and this relationship with the world. And when all that is working powerfully, he says this, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, the vis of visitation. And so in his, in his mind, he's saying, church, if you're functioning in a fruitful way, in a powerful way, in a healthy way, folks from the outside are going to see the gospel and they're going to want to know more about the gospel and then they're going to hear the gospel and then they're going to come to faith in the gospel and then they're going to give glory and honor to God on the day of his visitation, which is his day of return. This is what a healthy church looks like. And so church, you are a bunch of breastfeeding babies who function as a temple, a priesthood, as a foreigner in a foreign land, and you are on a mission. You're on a mission to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to see little pockets of this all around our church and in the context where we serve one that I shared with the kids at, at school was uh, at camp. I talked about what God's doing at Amherst College. And what, what God is doing at Amherst College is really an awakening. We've seen uh, student fellowship over the last three years or so go from about 30 people to about 300 people. And a lot of those are new believers. A lot of those kids come to this church. A lot of those kids have, have professed faith in this church. Some of those kids have been baptized in this church. And, and, and so they're, they're coming to faith. They're feeding on the pure spiritual milk. They're, they're growing in their community with one another. But not only that, they really have a heart for the mission of the gospel out on their campus. And man, I love hearing some of these guys and they're talking about it. And they're like, so who on our campus has not heard about the gospel? What little niche? What little group? Who on my dorm floor hasn't heard? We're going to pray for them and we're going to look for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And so not only are they into their relationship with God and each other, but they're on mission out in their, their campus and in the world. And there was just a little, there's a little snapshot, literally a snapshot of, of that being experienced. And a, a few weeks ago, I got to do a wedding for Grant Getty, the guy that, that was growing through his intake of God's word. And he got married in Indiana. And so 
Um, it was really fun, and I got to do the wedding, and, and most of the groomsmen were actually friends of his from Amherst College. All those groomsmen go to our church. Five of the men that were standing up there on that platform had been baptized in this church, including Grant. And so we had a time where I had them come up, and they laid hands on the couple, and they prayed for that couple as men of God, men who know, know God and love God and are being transformed by God. And, and then afterwards, we're doing toasts, and these men are standing up, and they're, they're giving praise to Christ, and they're talking about what Christ has done. And I don't know how many people came by. I mean, I'm serious. Like, 10 different people came up to me that were in the wedding party, and, they, and they're like, these men, like, these, these young men, well, I don't see young men like this. These, these guys are amazing. I'm like, it's because of Jesus. And it was such an awesome opportunity for gospel proclamation in the wedding. And, and, and it's, it's what God is doing in their community and through their community. And he's doing it in other little nooks and crannies on different campuses and in the different communities and different neighborhoods. Doesn't that make you hungry to be part of that more? Because I think this is just the beginning I, th I really think we're, we are in a season of awakening that God, God's moving in a way that's unique. In the last 18 years, there's no doubt, it is unique. And in large part, it's because of answered prayer. People have been crying out for this valley and for these campuses. They've been praying. I, mean, I remember 18 years ago, walking around on Amherst College campus and just praying, asking God, would you come into this place? And then many others were praying as well. And so my, my question to you this morning is, when you think about those relationships of up and in and out, where's God calling you to press in over the next month or so? Is it the nourishment that you need? Are, are you starving? Because the only word you're getting is really when you come here on Sunday. You need to press into that, right? So, so is, it, is it that, that, that God would, would help build your appetite for his word and that you would be nourished in a greater way and then that would help you to grow up into Jesus? Or is it in your in relationships? Are you needing to take some steps forward in terms of your involvement here, your involvement in a small group, your involvement in using your gifts for the glory of God, allowing Jesus to take you, you living stone you, and put you in the wall that, that God is building in this place? Or is it in the out relationships? where God is calling you to come out of your little enclave and move out toward the world, scary sometimes, I get it, but to move out toward the world to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel. Which is it? Don't, don't walk out of here just sort of with a theoretical, wow, that was a neat theory sermon on church and it was up and in and out. And Don't do that. Ask the Lord in, 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 that the Holy Spirit would help you know what it is that you need to embrace this morning. And it may be that what you need to embrace is the cornerstone himself. That you never put your trust in, you've ne never put your trust in Christ before. You like church, you, you, you like to be around Christians because they're nice or wh whatever the case may be, but, but you've never come to that cornerstone and said, I'm going to put my absolute full faith and trust in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. All this other stuff, you can't even participate in that until you get yourself built on the foundation. So it may be that this morning you need to receive that free gift. And I would encourage you to do that, to pray. Even now, as you're sitting in your seat, pray and ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and to put you on that cornerstone. And then we can start churching.
Let's, let's let the Lord build us into an even greater temple and holy priesthood. We're reminded of this every time we come to the table. It's part of why Jesus instituted this. He, he didn't want us to forget the cornerstone, right? I mean, a lot of us, we come into this building, we don't think much about the foundation, you know? But I'm telling you, if the foundation was bad in this building, we'd be thinking about the foundation. This place would be falling apart, but it's a good foundation. And so we don't want to forget the foundation. We want to go back to it again and again and again. And so Christ instituted this with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed, the night before his death. He took bread, he broke it, he gave it to them saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant. New covenant. That means you're all priests in the new covenant. In the old covenant, you had some priests, and everyone else was not a priest. You're a priest. If you're a Christ follower, you are in Christ. In the new covenant, you are priests. And the reason you're a priest is because, and he says this in the next words of institution, it's for the forgiveness of your sins. Those priests had to be cleansed and they had to have sacrifices made for them. In fact, they would walk into the tabernacle, the temple, and the first thing they had to do was clean up. And so you've been clean. You've been washed clean. And that gives you special access to God. He says, as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Okay? And so if you're a Christ follower, we invite you to come and to celebrate and remember the foundation of our church, of our lives, as we take the bread and we take the cup. But if you're still considering this, maybe you're new to it, maybe you're first time, I know we got some first timers and they're like, their hair's kind of blown back and like, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't know quite what I was in for this morning. Well, we're, we're really glad that you're here. And we want to encourage you if, if this is just the beginning of your investigation and asking questions to continue to do that, I'm happy to continue that. But if you're not a Christ follower, we're going to ask you to stay in your seat during this time as we take the bread and the cup. And then I would encourage you to seek someone out to have a conversation about what this is all about if you want to. All right, let's pray and then we'll come up and take communion. God, thank you that you nourish us with your word, that, that uh, you grow us up, Lord, that you've given us this access to you. And Lord, you've not only done all that, but you've also give us, given us a calling, a gifting and a calling to be living stones in this church and to pour our lives out, everything, our time, talent, treasure, uh, for your glory and for the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for the good of this world that desperately needs your gospel. And so, Lord, would you encourage us and challenge us as we take the bread and the cup, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.